The second Bible reading this morning is taken from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 14. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the, the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. Thank you, uh, Imad, for reading that passage of Scripture for us this morning. Let's come to our God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it can be read freely in this country. I pray this morning that you'll help me to explain your word to your precious people here pray this morning you forgive me my sins. May your Holy Spirit move in a mighty way, Lord, that we will be drawn to Christ as we think about the wonderful grace that you've given to us in Jesus and the glory that is ours in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, um, like I said, it's good to be able to preach God's word. It's a wonderful honor and a great privilege always, something that I think no preacher takes for granted. I want to thank God for the grace and the strength he gives us to come, to worship him, to read God's word and enjoy fellowship with one another. Just recently I was reading through the Murph News. There are, I think, flyers at, uh, somewhere in the building and um, I think perhaps at the entrance of the church or certainly in the hall. And this, this flyer speaks about Syria's war and the plight of Christians in Syria. And certainly we are also mindful of the fact of Christians who are suffering today in Egypt. When I read this, um, this article, it really kind of spoke to me again about the suffering that God's people are today enduring in many parts of the world. Suffering that is challenging to them. Some of them have been displaced from their homes, their, their families, from their jobs. Um, businesses have been taken over. Hundreds have been murdered. Many are missing. Others have used their life saving to ransom their safe passage or release kidnapped loved ones. Most remaining in some parts of these countries, others have fled as refugees. A suffering church. Do you sometimes 
think about that? Do you sometimes, do we sometimes, when I say you, do we sometimes think about our brothers and sisters in Christ who are really going through intense suffering today? The persecuted church. Nearly a million Christians have been killed in the last few years around the world on account of following Christ. We don't hear these things, do we? In the headline news, in our news channels, we don't hear about these things. Where people are suffering. And the, this morning we are going to close, conclude our study in the book of 1 Peter. And in the book of Peter, a, a theme that comes through this book clearly is the theme of suffering. Suffering Christians, those who face suffering at the time, and how we ought to live in the light of God's grace and the glory that is ours for the future in the midst of such intense suffering. Let me come here to the text this morning, which is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 to 14. It's been a long time, hasn't it, working our way through the book of 1 Peter. You see the immediate context here, Peter has spoken about Satan, and we looked at the roaring lion last time. How he is seeking to devour the very people of God, Satan himself, the devil. And the devil has been called the ruler of this world, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the cosmic power over this present darkness. So when we speak about suffering for Christ, we ought to understand that the forces of darkness is at work against God's people. Yes? The forces of darkness is against the work of gospel ministry. The forces of darkness is against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter gave us, I think gives us five strategies, I believe, in this passage, in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, on how we can respond to the devil's attacks. I'm giving you just the immediate context here. Be sober-minded, he says. Be alert. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. Remember that we are not alone. So we don't underestimate Satan's power, nor should we overestimate his power. Because as the Bible tells us, that we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. And so today, as we look at our passage before us uh, this morning, we are going to finish our series of 1 Peter. And I trust that our study of 1 Peter has been helpful, has been encouraging to all of us in our growth in Christ, realizing that the Christian life is not about health, success, and prosperity. It's more than that. It is characterized by trials. It is characterized by persecution. It is characterized by suffering. It is not a theology that says to us, come to Jesus Christ and all your problems will be somehow magically resolved. That you live your life to the full potential and everything is going to be fine. Is that the case? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so, friends. Right? That is, there are trials and testings that come our way. And to some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that trial is intense, that suffering is intense. In fact, five times in this letter, Peter has returned to the theme of suffering. It is suffering for following Jesus. You see, at the time, see, Christians were used as human tortures 
to light up Nero's garden parties. I was reading on the history of the church this past couple of weeks uh, on an excellent book, and I had to put the book down on a few occasions to, to, to read as to how Christians were treated. Christians were used as human torches. Some of them were sewn inside wild animal skins and put out for hunting dogs to devour. Others were nailed to crosses and were the objects of other terrible acts. And so First Peter was probably written just after that persecution began toward the end of perhaps A.D. 64. And the believers were experiencing a fiery time indeed. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. And Peter may well see on the horizon the persecution of Nero in which both he and the Apostle Paul were killed. In fact, Peter was killed. He was crucified upside down. And Christians were burned in Nero's courtyard. So Peter will one day himself experience the ultimate sacrifice in following Jesus. And today, two Christians are being persecuted, churches burned down, and it seems that no one cares about these kinds of atrocities committed against Christians. I have yet to hear a news program that highlights the issues of Christian persecution in the world. Do you hear that when you put your news channels on TV? No, you won't hear that, would you? In fact, I was reading through the United Nations uh, their, their charter. Uh, why is the United Nations established? Let me read the preamble. I mean, you, you can read it, it's there. It says this, We the peoples of the United Nations determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind, and to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and the worth of the human person, in the equal rights of men and women, and of nations large and small, and to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained, to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. Do you think that this has been followed? I just put the question to you this morning. Our own constitution, the article, the, 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 our own constitution, I was reading that document, uh, it, it states clearly the freedom for us to have religious freedom in this land. We praise God for that, that we have it here. But sadly, the United Nations, they just stand there and look at these things happening. Christians being persecuted, it still goes on. But friends, this morning, I don't want us to go from this place feeling despondent, right? Certainly God's word does not want us to go from this place feeling that way. In fact, Peter has, left, has not left his readers with a note of despondency. Indeed, he reminds us that in the midst of suffering, we ought not to lose hope. And Peter reminds us of this hope right at the very beginning of the letter. In fact, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, let's read it. He has given us new birth. What? Aha. How? Of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you see that? He has not given us some dead, deadness. God has given us a living, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Praise him, Peter says. 
this new birth that God has done is a post, my dear friend. This is, this is the, the, the hope that we have. It's not this hopelessness in the world. We have a living hope through Jesus Christ. And so Peter then, giving that living hope, he comes back as he comes to the conclusion of this letter. He comes back again to the theme of suffering. In your Bibles, if you have your Bibles open, you will see this in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I mean, that alone is a sermon text for today, isn't it? <laughs> right? Just look at this passage. Notice what he says about suffering. He says that suffering is temporary. In short, suffering continues, yes, but it is short in comparison to eternity. And he says to these believers, as they live in the midst of such suffering, Peter reminds them of the God of all grace. And when we speak of grace, we speak of God's common grace and also of his special grace. In a speech made in 1863, Abraham Lincoln, I was reading about his life, what happened to Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, as we know, was the 16th president of the United States, serving from March 1861 until his assassination. He says this. It's quite interesting to see where the state's U.S. is today, right? Okay. He said this. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and persevering grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. You see, the God of grace gives common grace to all of mankind, but it's also his saving grace. He sends the sunshine and the rain. He sustains the whole world. But there is another kind of grace that Peter also speaks about here, and that is, I think, saving grace, and Paul talks about this in Ephesians. By grace, you have been saved. We studied, we are doing the five uh, solas, right? One of those is sola gratia. Grace alone. Tonight, faith alone. Next week is going to be Christ alone and soli Deo Gloria. All glory to God. See, grace alone. For by grace you have been saved. See, when the Bible tells us that, that there is something, let me say it this way. When we look around the world, we can see that something is wrong. Right? Yeah? Something is wrong. The Bible tells us that this is sin. That all of us have gone astray. We don't do what God would want us to do. 
The things that we should do, we don't do. And the things that we shouldn't do, we do. And the Bible is clear that the only way that this can actually be fixed is by something called grace. And we receive that grace through Jesus and through his death on the cross and by his resurrection. We sang this morning the, the hymn, Amazing Grace, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. John Newton. You see, Peter goes on to expand on this grace. In fact, in, in chapter 5 and verse 12, if you look at your Bibles, he says this, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. In fact, I think Peter kind of crystallizes, and he says the purpose of his writing here is to tell you, the readers, of this true grace of God. Stand firm in it. I have written briefly to you, exhorting, declaring that this is the true grace of God. The grace that flowed from God. The grace that flows to us through God. This is the grace that God himself has revealed to us. In fact, if you look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, we point out to you this morning, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. You see, friends, when Peter speaks about grace... Is speaking about God's plan from the very beginning. Look at your text there. 1 Peter, for example, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. This grace has been revealed. This grace was something that God had planned. And Peter is taking us back to the validity of Scripture. You see, we've touched on in our evening services on sola scriptura, which is the Scriptures alone. And people have asked me, Chris... How do you know the Bible is true? You guys, you're just assuming it. All right? A valid question. Has anybody said that to you? How do you know the Bible is true? It's good for you, but it's not good for me. I always say to them, you see, when you speak of sola scriptura, the scriptures alone, we cannot avoid one fundamental principle when we speak about scripture, and that is prophecy. And the fulfillment of prophecy. Because the scriptures speak, it acts, fulfills. Grace was spoken by God, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10, and fulfilled, revealed in Jesus. Do you see that? That's why this word is precious, right? That's why you're sitting here and you're thinking, when is Chris going to finish this sermon? Is it going to be 40 minutes? Is it going to be 20 minutes? I thought he's lost his voice. We preach, we, we give you this word. We put hours into preparation. Not that we come up here and kind of pretend we know everything else. No, because we want to learn this word together. You see, the grace that has been given. So this morning, Peter, I think, is saying more than just saving grace. He's giving us an all-comprehensive view of grace. As Christians, we are saved by grace. We are kept by grace. We will persevere in life through grace. We will continue in the grace of God, which enables us to remain in relationship with Jesus. Dr. Jerry Bridger says this, Every day of our Christian experience, 
should be a day of relating to God on the basis of his grace alone. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. I love that quote. Love it. You see, in the midst of all trials, perhaps mistreatment or other challenges in life, Peter wants his readers to know that they can face these challenges not by their own strength, but only because of the God of grace, the God of true grace. He will never ever leave us because this true grace is his keeping power. This true grace is his graciousness to his people. This grace is bringing to completion that which he began in our lives. And Peter doesn't stop there, does he? He says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, and so forth. You see, we are bound for glory, friends. Isn't that tremendous? God saves us by grace. He gives us grace to live every day. He gives us strength in the midst of weakness. He gives us hope in the midst of hopelessness. He gives us dependability in terms as opposed to despondency. He gives us a hope that is living, that is dynamic, that is fantastic. A God who loves you with an amazing love is, is saying to us this morning and to the church that you are going from grace to glory. And what is this glory? You see, Peter, uh, Paul talks about it. For, the, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. What's it? Beyond all? Beyond all comparison. Beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We are bound for glory. Very interesting text in John chapter 17, verse 24, where Jesus in his high priestly prayer said this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see, all the blessings of God, true grace in this life and the next life come for believers who are in union with Jesus Christ. And then Peter says this, he uses four nearly synonymous verbs to describe what God himself will do for his people. See what he will do. He will restore, oh, put that up there. He will restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, establish us. You see, I don't know where you are this morning in terms of God's grace in your life today. Maybe you're going through a real challenging time right now. Maybe you've even questioned the grace of God in your life. It's quite possible. And maybe you wondered, has God been gracious to me? Well, there's a confirmation here in this text. We may not see it, but Peter says these four things. You see, God will restore us, he will confirm us, he will strengthen us, he will establish us. It begins here. 
and will come into completion and to fulfillment on the day of glory. You see, Peter probably uses these words as a, I put here in my notes, as a rhetorical crescendo, which refers to the ultimate, complete work of God in our lives in eternity. One day, we will completely be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. And then Peter says this, he breaks out with one of those powerful benedictions. To God, what does he say at the end there? In verse 10, verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, that doesn't finish the sermon this morning, okay? <laughs> See, amen, he says there. Now let me say this, friend. This is important, the historical context here. Just me, please bear with me. It may have been construed by some at the time that this letter was written that the Romans had the dominion forever. The Roman rule at the time brought what they call the Pax or the Pax Romana, which is Roman peace that ended the regional wars at the time. It unified the entire Roman Empire. But the price of this peace came at the expense of the Roman power that was so powerful and mighty that anyone who dared to question it would have been killed. The glory was to Rome and its power. And until the conversion of Constantine, all the might and power of Rome stood against this new infant church. And in the face of Roman might and power, Peter comes out with a powerful reminder when he says, and the Greek construction is, is really a very strong construction there. He says, to God alone belongs the dominion forever and ever to him be the glory and dominion as we see here in this text here. To him be the power forever and ever. That's our God. Right? World leaders come and go, right? I was speaking. <laughs> I was speaking to the Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson on Friday. I said to him, John, tell me, do people still recognize you when you are up and about. It says, occasionally I take a taxi and then someone says to me, oh, you are, you were the deputy prime minister. Other times nobody even knows who I am, Chris. And he just made the comment, that's how life is. We come and we go. People become yesterday's men and women. Our former prime minister, Miss Gillard, I mean, I've not heard, heard. Where, where is she? See, come and gone. Empires come and go, but God's power and dominion is forever. And nothing will be able to stop the power of God establishing his kingdom here on earth. Even in the midst of what Peter is saying, you are suffering, you are undergoing persecution, but the dominion, the power belongs to our Is that comforting to us this morning? We might feel we are just a small bunch of people. And we are, aren't we? I was thinking about our congregation here. We are a small church in a big world. (laughs) People driving past St. Stephen's every day. They know the red big church on the corner of Canterbury and Warrego Road. They look at our gardens. People have told me that. We are a small congregation. 
And I want to pray, friends, that from a small congregation like us, that God will do great things as he is doing. <laughs> and bring in conversions. And sending people into the mission field. And supporting missions. And reaching Surrey Hills and beyond for Jesus. I want to encourage you to invite people to your growth groups. To share the gospel. To invite people to church, to our services here. Morning, evening, wherever it is. To invite them so that they will come to know the grace of God. And so Peter goes to conclude this letter. He brings us final greetings and I don't want to expand too much on this. He mentions a guy by the name of Silvanus, who is also called Silas, a great brother in the, in the early church. Uh, very, and, and in fact, Peter calls him a faithful brother, isn't it? Look at uh, verse 12. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother. I paused there when I was writing this, this sermon. I thought about that for a moment. You know, we can just read it. Peter doesn't say, yeah, oh, Silas, Silvanus, the successful brother. Huh? The great brother, the big brother, this brother. Oh, no, sorry, I should mention big brothers. Forget about it. <laughs> Nothing to do with the show. Peter says, a faithful brother. You see, just pause there for a minute. Faithfulness. Are you faithful? Am I faithful? When, I, when my earthly life has come to an end, whatever, I hope people will be able to say it was a faithful brother. I hope they'll be able to say that of you, a faithful sister in Christ, a faithful brother in Christ, a faithful servant of Jesus. Well, I mean, come on, isn't that the thing that we are on about? Faithfulness. Being faithful brother, Silas. What a compliment. She who is in Babylon sends greetings. This was some people say was Peter's wife and so forth. No, I don't think so. Babylon was the code name among biblical writers of the first century for the city of Rome. And if Peter was writing this letter from Rome, that is, he is telling his readers that not only does he greet them, but also the church, that is she in Rome, greets them as well. And then he says, Mark, my son. Right? Uh, Mark, my son. Just it's there. This is Mark who went on the first missionary journey with Paul. He was sacked. Remember the whole story there? But he's brought back and Mark becomes the guy who wrote the gospel of Mark. And then he says this, greet each other with a kiss of love. Now what do we make of this? Do we go around giving kisses to one another? <laughs> what do we do with a text like this, right? I think that let me say this. The kiss in the ancient world was both a friendly sign of greeting and an emotional token of farewell. In the early church today, uh, in the early church, it was a, a, a custom at the time. It was the custom and norm that was practiced in the synagogue and in the church. And uh, this was the way people in the ancient Near East greeted each other at the time. And you would see, for example, when you watch the news and you watch Middle Eastern people, even the men, when they meet each other, they don't give one kiss like this. Well, I don't know if it's a kiss, but it's whatever on the cheek. It's one, it's two, and it's three, right? Is that correct? Come on. People who are coming to the Middle East, you should know this, right? The three kisses. When the Dutch kiss, it's, the, it's not exactly like that, but it's three kisses. And you can't, you can't give your cheek. I mean, when I, when I give a kiss to my sister-in-law and all that, if I leave my cheek against the cheek, she'll say, what's wrong with you, Chris? You see, 
the kiss here was a sign of, of, of being together, right? And in the church today, I think it is a matter of local custom. A handshake, a bow. Where I come from, from Sri Lanka, it would be like this. You, you put your hands together, you greet one another, an embrace or a kiss. As we wind up this morning, I want to ask you a question. Do you know the God of true grace in your life? If you are a Christian, then let me encourage you to keep looking to the God of true grace in your life. His grace is all sufficient for you. Right? Like Paul was reminded, my grace, God said, the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. That's the grace that God gives to us. You see, there are times in our lives when we feel so weak. There are times when I, I, I was thinking and preparing and planning for this service, and Lord, I feel weak at times. And God's amazing grace carries us through. That's grace. You need to trust him. We need to trust him to know that this God of grace is a gracious, a loving, almighty, sovereign, powerful God. Sent his son to reflect his grace at the cross. But more than that, friends, we're also bound for glory. That one day, when this earthly life has come to an end, which will one day happen, unless Jesus comes before that, you and I, everyone in this building will die. Praise God. That God has prepared a place for us in heaven. And when we die on earth here, we will be with the Lord in glory. And that is why the church must be a missional church. That is why the church must seek to reach the lost for Jesus. Isn't that the case? That is why we do missions. That is why we preach. That is why we teach. That is why you give your tithes and offerings to worship this God. That is why we go out. That is why we employ people. That is why we want to reach children for Jesus. Reach Australia for Jesus. Would you be praying with me for that? To reach Australia for Christ? This is because of our great God. He will take us to glory. And then Peter concludes this beautifully when he says in this letter, peace to all of you who are in Christ. You see this peace, it's that wellness, it's that calmness, it's that inner calmness that comes. Our lives can be so stressful. Is your life stressful? Um, anyway, don't answer. <laughs> right. It could be stressful, right? There are times, man, you don't know whether you're coming or you're going. Everything's happening. You'll be hit from one thing to another. Remember, we can ask his peace. We can turn to Jesus because he's the prince of peace. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Isaiah 26. It's wholesomeness. And one day, this peace that God has begun in your life will come to, conclusion, to, to fruition in eternity when we will have perfect peace. And I want to close with this. In tombstones, when people die, 
You always see those words most times. R-I-P. Rest in peace. I wonder what that means at times. I, I think I know what it is. It's basically saying the person has died now, so it doesn't have any troubles. It's in the grave. I think that's the meaning. But I want to say this, friends, this morning. That the epitaph on our souls, our lives, is not just a rest in peace, but rejoicing in that peace now, so that we will have peace in eternity forever. When the Prince of Peace returns, everything will be made peaceful. What a glorious Savior, right? So friends, this morning, we don't know when Jesus is coming, but we know that we are from grace to glory. I trust that God will encourage you this morning. And if you're not a Christian this morning, that you will consider the gospel call to you today to know that you have experienced grace and you're going to be with the Lord in glory. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful, awesome God. You've given us grace today and you set us on a journey of glory, eternal glory that is ours. One day to be with Jesus. We thank you for the words of Jesus who said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you, so that where I am, you may be also. Amen.